Hi there, I'm James Minor, one of the leaders of the church, and I just wanted to welcome you to our podcast. I hope it stirs, inspires, and encourages you. Our pastor, David Dark, will be preaching for us. Enjoy the message. Today, on the second podcast, I'm preaching a series called The Dream Team, which is based on the Trinity. The Bible clearly speaks of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but emphasizes that there is only one God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, the Lord is one. Thus the term tri, meaning free, and unity, meaning one. So you get triunity equals the Trinity, a.k.a. the Godhead. It is a way of acknowledging what the Bible reveals to us about God, that God is yet three persons who have the same essence and nature of being deity. In the Dream Team series, we'll be exploring these distinct personalities and their roles in our salvation, our lives, and humanity as a whole. The first part in this series is called Displacement. Displacement means... The action of moving something from its place or position. The action of moving something from its place or its position. Chapter 1 of Zechariah verse 7. Just before we read our text, there's three points, quote, questions to ask in regards to this sermon. One of the points is this, how does the Godhead analyze a nation? How does the Trinity make an observation regarding a nation? A second point would be there is a God called Heka. Heka, we will discover, makes a very tragic mistake. Why? The last point, but this won't necessarily be in chronological order, is Jesus makes a very dramatic random decision. And that decision is to curse the fig tree. 
Why? Why do something so random? Why do something which is out of the out of the nature of what he's doing in regards to healing, in regards to making the blind see, in regards to raising up disciples, in regards to preaching. Why do and undertake such a destructive miracle? And it's almost like if it explodes from nowhere. Well, look at this. As we read from our text, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Ido, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered, The angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you were angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous, for I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that for I was a little angry and they helped but with evil intent therefore thus says the Lord I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy my house shall be built in it says the Lord of hosts and the surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem again proclaimed saying thus saith the Lord of hosts my city shall again spread out through prosperity the Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem displacement in our text verse 7 says on the 24th day this was exactly five months after the building of the temple which resumed in Haggai 2.15 and two months after Haggai's last prophecy in Haggai 2 verse 20. Zechariah is about to receive a series of visions. Almost as a reward. For the people's first wholehearted endeavor to restore their worship of God. When you try to restore and when you try to rebuild something with a genuine, fervent heart on behalf of God, this does not go unnoticed. Zechariah says, as these people try to rebuild their worship, 
as they try to rebuild their relationship, as they try to rebuild the bridges that were broken and devastated, the very thing that triggered them into their captivity in the first place, as they're trying to make it right. God has seen, God has noticed, and God has bestowed them with a vision. As the prophets say, without vision, my people perish. It was Albert Einstein who said, we limit ourselves to our own vision and believe that is the vision for the world. There is a larger vision than our own. What God is doing here with the Jews is he's going to enlarge. He's going to broaden their vision that they see further. And what is transpiring is that there are individuals who are in this vision. These individuals are a cluster of Mountie Patrol officers. They just returned from a tour of duty. As they return back from a tour of duty, they report to a rider on a red horse who is standing among some trees. These tour of horse riders are very unusual because Zechariah will be the only one who sees them. If there was anyone else with Zechariah, they would not see these individuals. They would not see these mounted patrol officers. Neither would they see the leader on a red horse. The reason being is because these riders are not human. They're not corporeal. They're not of this dimension. They're ethereal. They're otherwise known as angelic beings. The prophet sees this vision at the nighttime. This is a vision, not a dream. He's awake, not asleep. And he sees it at the night time. It's at the night when some of our worst fears come upon us. It's at the night when, when our anxiety erupts in our soul. It's at the night time when insomnia comes upon us. It's at the night time when our minds are troubled with things that have occurred which is detrimental to us or our family, it is at the night time that terror can start pervading and permeating in our hearts. The night, many times is at the night that we need vision. For David knew this, when he wrote in the Psalms, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I should fear evil. I should fear terror. I should fear tomorrow. Because I'm in the valley of death. And maybe tomorrow I might not wake up. Maybe tomorrow I might not be around because the shadow of death would take on a form, a grisly and a ghastly form and manifest itself and take my biological life away and rip me from the land of the living. This all happens at night. Yet David says, I will not be afraid because I met a visitor at the end of my valley and the shadow of death. He had a rod. He had a staff. He empowered me. He brought me to a place, a room. He set a table for me. He was God and I was able to, as the Greeks would say, koinonia, fellowship with him. And it dissipated my fears. Zechariah has his vision. In the night time, he's not sleeping, he's conscious, he's awake. It says that as the prophet, he sees this rider on the red horse. This rider makes a strategic move as he is moving. As he is rolling, as he is galloping, it says he stops. But he stops at a very critical place. He stops amongst myrtle bushes stroke trees. It says these myrtle trees were in a hollow. They were low down. They were at the bottom. They were at a low-lying place. This is where the rider stops. Zechariah is with another angel. We will call him the interpreting angel who's communicating to Zechariah exactly what is going on. The Bible says that this rider, this rider on a red horse has a name. They call him the angel of the Lord. Writers, commentators have said, this is the pre-incarnation. This is the prelude of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. For it has been stated, or it has been asked, if Jesus is God, where was he before the New Testament? Where was he before he came into Galilee, Nazareth, and Jerusalem? Where was he before he was birthed in Bethlehem? Where was he before he walked the dusty streets of Israel? But his cousin John says where he was. He says that in the beginning, 
beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, that He existed before He was physically born. He existed before He manifested to this earth, that He existed, that He had life, that He has always been around from eternity past. This is not a created angel. This is a uncreated angel. This is deity. This is not like who the Jehovah Witnesses say is Angel Michael or some supreme angel who was created. It is not just some ethical teacher. He's not like who the Muslims would say, some type of prophet. No, this is not just a rational human being. This is not just a mortal. This is God himself. And it says God himself. He stops. And he stops. At the myrtle tree. One man said in regards to the deity of Christ. He said Buddha. Buddha never claimed to be God. Moses never claimed to be Jehovah. Muhammad never claimed to be Allah. Yet Jesus Christ claimed to be the true and the living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search of the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claim to be holy. Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. This angel of the Lord is God, second person of the dream team. John 8, 58, Jesus upon planet earth, he's confronted by the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees constantly dogging him. Constantly trying to test him. Constantly trying to malign him. And they're trying to set him up. But Jesus doesn't need to be tricked. He doesn't need a stumbling block in order for him to articulate who he is. He says in John 8, 58, he says, most assuredly, I say to you. Before Abraham was, I am. And what he has just done there, he has just quoted what the Hebrews call the tetragrammaton. 
which is literally meaning that name, that unsaying name, the name that the Jews use with such reverence, the name Yahweh, that when the Jews will be writing their books, they were literally, when they came upon that name, it was so holy that they would have to use the word Adonai, or literally, if they came upon that name and they had to write it, some of them, most of them will wash their hands in reverence. This is the name that pulsated out of the burning bush. This is the name when Moses said, if I am going to set or going to be the trigger to go to Pharaoh to tell him to let your people go, I need some backup. I need you to give me some authority. They're going to ask me the question. The elephant in the room is, who are you? And God came to Moses because the context is he's just been known mainly as God, Elohim, all-powerful. But God don't want that name used anymore when it comes to his people. Why? Because Elohim is a generic name. Everyone uses that name. Every nation knows that name. But God wanted Moses to be clear on the covenant name. I am that I am. Otherwise known as Yahweh. Otherwise known as the self-existent one. The one who is everlasting. You see this bush that is burning Moses. I am that I am. I'm everlasting. This bush will never go out. This bush will never be extinguished. This bush will forever burn as long as I want it to burn. Because it's everlasting. That might freak you out. But what should freak you out even more is where does the fuel come from? Where does the paraffin come from? Where does the source come from? What makes it burn? What gives it energy? And that's the point, Moses. I am that I am. I am self-existent. To pull it another way and to summarize as much as summarizing perfection is possible, all things that came to be have a cause. The atheists will say, well, who caused God? The agnostics will say, well, who made God? The skeptics will say, well, where did God come from? I say it with much reverence. But a fool has said in his heart that there is no God. It's a dumb question. It's a mute point. Why? Because God never came to be. He's been around from eternity. He is the first cause. Therefore, he has no cause. He is the first cause. He is the first cause of all natural phenomena. He who made all things, ex nihilo, the visible from the invisible. 
who has maximal power to create from nothing by his fiat. He speaks it into existence. No antecedent causal conditions can precede him. No destructive state of affairs can exceed him. The reason for man's existence is without himself. The reason for God's existence is within himself. Man is becoming, God is being, the unembodied supreme mind, for God is spirit, God the self-existent, non-dependent, non-contingent, transcendent, eternal, immaterial, beginningless, timeless, changeless, necessary being, I am that I am. And this is why Isaiah would say, there is none like me. In verse 8, the man who's riding in a posture of readiness, in a posture of speed and resolution, the second person of the dream team is situated on earth and he's among the myrtle trees. The myrtle trees. It was a tree renowned for giving their fragrance. But in regards to taxonomy, in regards to classification, in regards to where these trees come in the hierarchy. This was no stately, regal, beautiful cedar tree that stood with gravitas. A cedar tree that attracted kudos, no, this is a lowly tree, a humble tree, a tree in a depressed state. We know that because it said it was at the bottom, it was at the bottom of a hollow. It's at a lower ground. It's in a dark and shady grove. It's hidden by adjacent hills, is hidden by other more stately trees, is hidden by other foliage, is hidden by other landmarks. But this is where the second person of the dream team has situated himself. He's gone to a low place. He's gone to a place that can only be described as the bottom. He's gone to a place at a depressed state. This is not like the one who's looking to take out the dream team. This is not the one who moves like a roaring lion in order to stifle, to frustrate, 
in order to undermine and usurp what the dream team does. This is not like Lucifer, the morning star, who in Isaiah 14, 13 says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's why the man is so titanic. That is why Lucifer is so depraved. He is intoxicated with high places. He is enamored with elevation. He is absolutely possessed in his mind to climb to heights. He is absolutely totally frenzied to get as high as possible, but not like the other morning star. Not like Jesus Christ. He looked for the low place. For he was willing to put off his glory. He was willing to put off his radiance. He was willing to put off the oscillating light that emanated from his being and put on the flesh, human flesh, to put on a birthday suit and to go down onto planet Earth. And to humble himself and become a man. And he strategically stops at the myrtle trees. Why the myrtle trees? Because this represents his people. Why the myrtle trees? Because it represented the depressed state of Israel at that time. Why the myrtle trees? Because it's symbolic of the church. When you're at a low place, when you're at a place where you're finding it hard to rise up again, when you're at a place of brokenness, when you're at a place where you've got no other option, all options are off the table. When you're at a place where you've been forsaken by family members, forsaken by friends, when you are at your lowest place, don't get it twisted thinking that God will also forsake you. No, he will never leave you. No, he will never forsake you. It was Paul in Corinthians who discovered this to be the case. He said, in my weakness, in my depressed state, in my lowly place, in my place of brokenness, his strength is made sufficient. God is still around in the low place. The myrtle tree is not stately, it's got fragrance. But it's nothing impressive. Struggling. It's in a dark, solitary place. The people of God are filled with melancholy. They're in obscurity. What friends they had were hidden. 
there appeared no way of relief and succor for them. Israel, when they were fighting for their independence, when they had become or fighting to become a nation, this was difficult, a difficult process because they had hills all around them, enemy, enemies all around them. They had to think of a way. When in 1948, David Ben-Gurion is trying his best to see how Israel can become a nation. It's after the Second World War. They can't be caught in other sporadic nations that a psychopath like Adolf Hitler can come along again and commit a genocide which was blood-curdling. They need their own country. They need their own borders. They need safety. But how are they going to pull it off? They need a miracle. They're just a small amount of fledgling people surrounded by major powerful enemies around them. David Ben-Gurion wants to go to America, but there's other responsibilities and other urgent matters and he's struggling and a woman called Golda Murr she says I will go I will go to America he says are you sure no no he says yes I will go this woman Golda Murr's decision to leave for America in the book Oh Jerusalem to speak to major influential leaders in New York and Chicago. She arrived in America with no luggage. And the only the clothes that she was wearing. The account tells of how she was the fifth or the sixth speaker. So obviously by that time, some of the audience might have got restless or tired and thinking not another one after the first the second and the third speaker their kind of patience their kind of discipline their kind of awareness and their focus is starting to wane whereas the fifth or sixth speaker of the evening at the sight of a simple stair figure moving to the speaker's stand, someone in the crowd murmured, She looks like a woman of the Bible. Then, Golden Murr, without a text, the messenger, the plain-looking woman Ben-Gurion had sent from Jerusalem began to speak. And this is what she historically said. In a few months, she told her audience, 
a Jewish state will exist in Palestine. We will fight for its birth. That is natural. We shall pay for it with our blood. That is normal. The best among us will fall. That is certain. But what is equally certain is that our morale will not waver no matter how numerous our invaders may be. Yet, she warned, those invaders will come with cannon and armor against those weapons. Sooner or later, our courage will have no meaning for we will have ceased to exist. She said, my friends, in making a plea, we live in a very brief present. When I tell you we need this money immediately, it doesn't mean in two months. It doesn't mean next month. It means right now. The woman who had arrived in the United States of America one bitter January night with $10 in her pocketbook will leave with $50 million. And this is the time of 1948 with the whole inflation levels of money. That's a lot of money. Waiting for her aeroplane at Lydia Lida Airport was David Ben-Gurion, the man who had wanted to go in her place. He said, the day when history is written, he solemnly told her, it will be recorded that it was thanks to a Jewish woman that the Jewish state was born. Ladies and gentlemen, though that might be true on a human level, on a supernatural level, the angel of the Lord is overlooking his people. The second person of the dream team has his eyes upon his people. No matter what low place we're at, no matter if we're at the bottom of the river, because these times the Jews were in bondage to Babylon. After Babylon, they were in bondage to Persia. And thus their rivers, the Tigris, their rivers, the Euphrates, and the illusion is that they're at the bottom of a river. But as the psalmist would say, there is no place that we can get away from his spirit. As Psalms 139 verse 9 says, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is no death. There is no low place. There is no kind of like 
hit even where Joseph found himself that God can't reach you that God can't meet with you that God can't send someone to you the 16th person the 16th president of the United States knew this Abraham Lincoln when he said I'm not concerned that you fell I'm only concerned that you get back up again and with the power of the Holy Ghost with the loving care and compassion of the angel of the Lord who comes amongst us who comes amongst us when we are at a low place his strong arm is able to pull us up again and he's willing to the uncreated angel is our guarantee that we can pull through the valley of the shadow of death behind the rider in verse 8 are some red horses this is also a guarantee that he doesn't come alone that our displacement that us being away from where we should be that us moving from where we need to be he's willing to dispatch resources to help our displacement to get back to where he wants us to be behind him were other riders their horses were speckled with white and red white and red red speaks about war red speaks about judgment white speaks about victory white speaks about overcoming when our Lord comes, he doesn't come in the defeatist mode. He comes with victory. And if that means that he has to rage a war, if that means that he has to execute judgment upon those who will touch a hair of your head, by any means necessary for his myrtle trees. These riders are reporting to him. These riders who are behind him. These riders whose horses are checkered. Because what is transpiring for the Jews is a checkered issue. There was issues of victory when Cyrus the Great overcame Babylon with his Persian army and he set the Jews free. That is something to be victorious about. But as we will learn through the text, there is a displacement. They're not enjoying the fullness of their freedom. There is a displacement. They have been hamstrung from getting the full riches of that freedom. There is a displacement 
advancements because they are being crippled and in paralysis of receiving the fullness of what God has for them. Their whole life at this moment is checkered. He stood among the myrtle trees. He positioned himself. But here's the question. And here's one of the points. Why does he place himself at the myrtle tree? Why does he place himself to be ready? Ready if needed. Is it just to show solidarity with his people? Yes, but there's another reason. The angel of the Lord will place himself amongst the myrtle trees also for his people's enemies. The myrtle trees by nature, being in a hollow place, strategically for battle, they are at a disadvantage. Strategically for battle, they're at a place where they can be overrun. You, it's not wise or prudent to be at a low place when you engage in warfare. So what does that mean? Your enemies know this. Your enemies know you're vulnerable. Your enemies know that you're volatile. Your enemies know that you're prone for attack. Your enemies know that if there is a time to destroy you, now's the time we move. Now's the time we mobilize. Why? Because you can't defend yourself adequately. You're at a disadvantage. You're at a bad position. And now comes Hecker's mistake. Who is Hekar? Hekar was an Egyptian god. Hekar was one of the gods that God visited Egypt for, for retribution. Hekar was a frog-head god. As we all know, and as we all would surmise is inevitable, Hecker lost that encounter with the dream team. But one thing about losing a battle or losing fatally, you've always got people you know, people from your tribe, people from your clan, who are not happy that one of their own have been defeated. You've always got those who are close to you, those who are family members, relatives, 
those who are maybe in this climate of identity politics where the only truth is the truth that comes out of the mouth of someone who shares your skin color or someone who shares your kind of like ideology that's the only truth Waheka he had likewise some satanic hordes who were faithful to him, some satanic powers who were off his clan, who were off his race, this frog-headed principality. When he went down, reverberations went in the caverns of darkness and there were some powerful potentates of hell who weren't very pleased that one of their boys has suffered a fatal defeat and let's meet some of them in revelation 16 13 and i saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world what's their reason what's their objective what are these three frogs trying to pull off what is their modus operandi it is this to gather them to the battle of that great day of god almighty these subordinates these hangers on these clan members of heka the frog-headed gods they're so wound up. They've been in centuries full of bitterness, full of anger, full of rage. They want recompense because one of their boys went down. That's less prestige for them. That's less kudos for them in the pantheon of hell. So they're itching. They're itching to get back at the dream team. They're itching to make this right. They're itching for victory. They're itching to get back on the hierarchy of the powers of darkness. They're itching to be a main player in hell again. And by their lack of wisdom and their incredible naivety, they make a strategic mistake. They have inspired the diplomats, the kings, the politicians of the Antichrist to go to Armageddon, go to the hill of Megiddo, go to the Middle East and let's take out the Jews. Why? Because the Jews are a low place. The Jews have no allies. The mark of the beast has gone out. Literally, the Antichrist is in control. The Jews are fighting for their life. You've got Israeli militia trying to keep the nation from collapsing totally to the Antichrist. These three 
frogs, these clan members of Hecasee, Israel's at a low place. Now's the time to strike. Now's the time to take them out. Now's the time, as the Iranian regime would say, let's sweep these boys into the sea. But they made the fatal mistake. Why? It's a trap. Joe 3.9 God says this and he says it in the very place that the frogs have sent the military, have sent the kings and have sent demoniac civilians. He says in Joe 3.9 Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble. And come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there. O oh Lord, let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow. Their wickedness, for their wickedness is great. You free frogs or satanic council, you've just been set up. You've just led a world into an ambush. Because once they get to Armageddon, once they get to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Son of God is already waiting. And it's what he wanted to happen. There are people, they pontificate about holy war. There are those who think that might be the best way. Well, at this place, they get what they want because this is a holy war. How do we know that? The word prepare, Kodash. Prepare. It means to sanctify, holy. The Son of God is literally saying, this war is sanctified. What do you mean? It, the mean is in the word, to set apart. This war is set apart. For who? For me. This is not no war about foreign affairs. This is no war about foreign policy. 
This is no war about oil. This is no war about territory gain. This is no war in, rep in regards to re revenge against another nation. This is no general war. This is no vague war. This is no kind of like shot in the pan war. No, this is holy war. Why is it holy war? Because I'm God and I'm going to fight it. So come. Come. All you guys who are into farming, you want to wipe Israel off the map. The satanic frogs have left you or led you to your demise. You think it's the opportunity to wipe Israel out. You think it's the opportunity to totally destroy them. Hamas, you want to destroy them. Come, come to the valley of, valley. Come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Come Hamas. Hezbollah, you think it, they're now on the brink of destruction? Come! Come, Hezbollah! Come to the mountain of Jehoshaphat! Come! Every farmer who has a plowshare, every farmer who has some type of implement for farming, they are so ecstatic that they can wipe these people out, that they can have mass genocide. They start to transform their farming gear into weapons. So bad that even the disabled get involved. Let those who say they are weak be strong. But the only problem is, when they get there, the angel of the Lord is already waiting. It's a trap. It's a trap. Never make the mistake of thinking. When you're in a vulnerable place, when you're in a volatile place, when you're in a place where you feel you've got no resources to get you out of it, don't negate and don't put a full stop on the powerful arm of God to turn what was meant for evil around for good. In verse 9, the angel that talked with me, it wasn't the angel of the Lord. It was the interpreted angel. And the Hebrew word, Amar, it communicates not just to the external hearing in this context, but it was to the heart. We know we could all be in church, listen to the same preaching, but don't receive the same message. Because when your heart is not sensitive, the word is not absorbed. You could be hearing a message externally, but it hasn't penetrated internally. But here, 
It says this interpretation by the angel is striking Zechariah's heart. In verse 10, belief will stop there. At verse 10, it says, These are they whom the Lord sent to walk up and down. Now here's a comprehensive description of what these angelic riders, modus operandi is, what their raison d'etre is, what their purpose is, what the Greeks might say, their philema, the will, the purpose, the determination of their ministry. It is to go up and down upon the earth. This is nothing new in Job 2 verse 2. God asks Satan, what have you been up to? And Satan's response is, I've been going to and fro upon the earth. Yes, you've been like a roaring lion going up and down, but you've been going up and down to sow evil. You've been going up and down to explode your menacing, menacing power upon souls of men. You've been going up and down in order to bring pain. You've been going up and down in order to inject transgression. You've been going up and down for malevolent purposes. But these angels, they've been going up and down to report to the rider upon the red horse. They've been going up and down to speak about what has been displaced, what has been moved, what has been usurped, what has been undermined, what has been changed from the plan and from the blueprint of the dream team. They're observing, they're looking, but the angel of the Lord is not new to this. In verse 10, it says, as they speak, that's all they're doing. These angels are not executing judgment. On the other end of the spectrum, they're not pacifying the earth either. Their sole role at the moment is to report back. And what are they reporting? The state of the earth. The state of how things are. Why? They're reporting back. 
because the angel of the Lord is very concerned how the earth and how the cosmos, the order, the arrangement, how things are, the laws of what is occurring is how is it affecting my myrtle trees? How is it affecting the church? How is it affecting my people? And he wants a report. And the report that these writers will feed back in our day and age is this is the state of affairs in 2020. Us angelic beings, the regal, noble race that serves Jehovah, that serves the dream team as we have been going to and fro upon the earth, whether in Europe, whether in Africa, whether in Asia, whether in the United States, wherever we've been, there are some places more than others, but this is what we're finding. This is some of the feedback. Children! are detransitioning from their sex. Marriage is no longer exclusively between male and female. Scripture, your holy word, angel of the Lord, even you who are articulated and personified as the word of God, your scripture is now considered to be festering with hate speech. Christian saints who preach on the streets are given asbos, cautions, they're fined. And if they don't pay the fine, they could be sent to prison. Let alone in some of the other nations that we walk to and fro upon. Some were even given the death penalty for preaching your words. Parents are being overruled and undermined by feminists and transgender and LGBTQ activists who seek to change the laws in order to indoctrinate and in order to social engineer their children to accept and normalize and introduce country lifestyles. A transgender movement where men who have not physically transitioned to a woman, but still have all their appendages of a man, can verbally self-identify as a woman and subsequently end up working in the girl guides or asking only for a female police officer to frisk them, or to go to a woman-only prison, even where there has been evidence and a history of that individual possessing predatory behavior, some cases resulting in that individual violating women prisoners. We've gone to and fro. We've analyzed the state of affairs on planet Earth. These people cannot see us. 
We're blind. We're, we're literally invisible to that naked eye. But as we've gone to and fro, angel of the Lord, second member of the dream team, we have seen things displaced. We have seen things that you have said from the very beginning and now they've been displaced and they've been changed and they've been warped and they've been undermined. We're going to and fro. And this is the report that we will feed back to you. It was George Orwell in his book, 1984, who was not a Christian, he prophesied of this time, of this time where there will be a restriction and opposition to free speech, that the public square will be closed down, that there will be these sinister individuals who want to control the way you think. Who literally want to have groupthink. George Orwell says this in his book, 1984. It was terribly dangerous to let your thoughts wander when you were in any public place or within range of a telescreen. The smallest thing could give you away. A nervous tick, an unconscious look of anxiety, a habit of muttering to yourself anything that carried with it the suggestion of abnormality of having something to hide. In any case, to wear an improper expression on your face, to look incredulous when victory was announced, for example, was itself a punishable offence. There was even a word for it in Newspeak. It was called face crime. Today, they called it hate crime. Angel of the Lord. Uncreated angel. Second person of the dream team. Godhead. The state of affairs is that. The state of affairs is that. With that, we'll finish. The footnote. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ. Jesus Christ does not only love us, does not only care for us, does not only look out for us when we are at the heights 
when things are going well. He's not a proponent of the prosperity movement that says God is more alive when you're rich and you're rolling with money and you've got so many things and so many gadgets. It reminds me of the mysticals. The Athenian general during the time of the Persian War, he was, and also the time in the Peloponnesian War with Sparta, he said this general, when I choose a man, I want the likely man and not the rich man. I prefer a man without the money rather than money without the man Jesus Christ does not need our trinkets Jesus Christ does not need our paraphernalia Jesus Christ does not need us sitting on the top of the totem pole when we are broken when we are shattered, when we are full of fear, when we feel overcome, when we feel that we're at our wit's end. That is not a time when Jesus Christ decides to bail out. That is not a time when Jesus Christ decides to say he would have none of us. But my friend, there is a time when Jesus could be as close and as close as he ever has. Cry out to him at that time. Displacement, finish. Next in the series is intentional vulnerability, part two. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, I encourage you, I implore you, receive him, know him, and reach out to him. And with the confession of your mouth and the belief in your cardia, your heart, you can be saved. If you're listening on YouTube, the sinner's prayer will be visual. Reach out to a brother, a sister, a family member who knows Christ. God bless you.